0: previously on Sometimes It Rains. I look at my stepfather passing away as a blessing because he used to beat me, he used to beat my sister, and he used to beat my mom. And he came at me one day and with a knife, and my mom jumped in the way and uh, he cut her throat and I almost killed her. The Angels wanted me to report to spring training at 220 pounds. I didn't lose any weight. I reported to spring training at 252 pounds. Big as a horse, out of shape, and they were upset with me. Next day he come to the ballpark. He got a cast on his hand. So the manager Jim Fergusi called me inside of you know, his office and he said, Willie, you ready to play? You are my first baseman now. I said, I'm ready to go, Jimmy. He put me in, and Raw was out for two months, and I totally the up, uh, smoked it. That's why I got traded to the Kansas City Royals, cause I used to wear them out.
1: There's no such thing as a typical baseball player. They come from all walks of life, have varied interests. In many cases, it can be difficult for teammates to find things they do have in common. Many don't even share a common language, relying on a growing number of bilingual players to bridge the communication gap. But one thing they can all agree on? There's nothing worse than a slump. Johnny Bench used to say, slumps are like a soft bed. They're easy to get into and hard to get out of. As the 1980 baseball season moved into the summer, Willie Aikens had found himself a new home with the Kansas City Royals, surrounded by teammates he liked and playing for a manager he loved, Jim Fry, who had shown a willingness to stick by Willie despite the fact that he was slogging through one of those dreaded slumps.
0: I had one of the worst f- first half a player can have. The fans literally booed me every day in Kansas City for the first half. But Jim Fry, you know, he, he never said, Willie, you're struggling. I'm gonna set you on the bench. He never said that.
1: Yeah.
0: It was always like, hey, give a chance to play.
1: He was determined to break out of it, and he would look for help wherever he could find it. He looked for help in his swing, the most powerful gift he possessed. On a trip to Baltimore, he confided in one of the all-time greats, Frank Robinson. Robinson told him he needed to stop being home run happy. He said, you're not Reggie Jackson. He told him to swing like himself, stop trying to be what you're not. He looked for help from his friends. He'd quickly become friends with Willie Wilson and Amos Otis. Despite constantly teasing him about his stutter, George Brett had become a friend as well. And Willie desperately wanted to be the cleanup hitter George needed. But George didn't have time to help Willie pull out of his slump. He was chasing history. As the season wore on, Brett was looking as if he might just end the season with a batting average over 400, a nearly impossible feat. The others tried to help Willie get his mojo back. Amos Otis invited him to Vegas over the All-Star break.
0: He had some guys on their team that liked to party too, so I guess I'm, I found that out pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, became good friends with Willie Wilson, you know, we used to hang, hang out together. We did things together uh, after the games.
1: Willie will be the first to tell you women were always his weakness. And for a professional ball player, the opportunity to meet women is never in short supply. In 1980, it was well known that if a woman was seeking the attention of a Kansas City royal, on any given night, the Sheridan Bar was the place to be. On one such given night, Willie found himself drowning in his second screwdriver and grumbling with the bartender, trying to help. Every week, the bartender would say, you'll break out of it, Willie. But that didn't help Willie any more than the booze at the stadium did. But perhaps the blonde woman with the tiny nose at the end of the bar could help. He sat patiently until Marvin Gaye came on perfect. He walked up and asked her if she'd like to dance. She responded by saying, I'd like to do some cocaine. We can dance first, though, if you'd like. She obliged for the next two songs before whispering the word, Coke. He took her home. As she laid out the lines of cocaine in front of him, Willie had no way of knowing the dark and twisted journey this strange white powder would take him on. The way in which, in his own words, his whole life could have been different. But, in this moment, for just this moment, he wasn't thinking about baseball. Welcome to Episode 2 of Sometimes It Rains. McBride is
0: going back. This ball may be out of here. Home his second home run. We knew somebody on every team that was getting high.
1: And everybody's doing cocaine. Baseball players have to go
0: in front of a grand jury. They're saying, yeah, I did cocaine. Can you blame me? It's a slow goddamn game. Come on,
1: Dad! We're locking these people up. They're nonviolent.
2: Every study shows that mandatory minimums are not working.
1: Baseball players are superstitious. It's one of the time-honored traditions of the game. All athletes have them, really. But no sport embraces superstition quite like baseball. Maybe it has to do with the length of the season, which inevitably leads players to have crazy streaks, and those aforementioned infuriating slumps. Whatever the reason, most players have them. Randy Choate, who spent 15 years in the majors, said when he came to the mound, he had to pick the ball up off the grass. If it was on the dirt, he had to kick it into the grass before he could pick it up. Then he threw exactly seven warm warm-up pitches. Never six, never eight, seven. If he entered from the bullpen down the left field line, he had to run between the third baseman and the shortstop. If he entered from the right, he had to run between the first baseman and the second baseman. Not the bases, the basemen. Which makes it fun to imagine the other players shifting and rotating just to mess with him, but that would be disrespectful to the game. Never mock a superstition, lest you be mocked for your own. Fans have them too. In 2014, the Kansas City Royals returned to the World Series after 29 years of complete ineptitude. That summer, on a trip to Japan, I attended a Yakult Swallows game. One of the professional teams in Tokyo. It turned out that the Royals' right fielder Nori Aoki was a much-beloved former member of the Swallows. In a selfless and slightly drunken display of international goodwill, one of the Swallows' ardent fans gave me a tiny umbrella. Yakult fans wave them over their heads as a way of saying, your pitcher is finished. He should go take a shower. At least that's what I was told, but it's entirely possible the meaning gets a bit lost in the translation. In any case, I brought the umbrella home, and throughout the entire postseason, every time Nori Aoki came to bat, I would open that umbrella, often defying other more broadly accepted superstitions like never open an umbrella indoors, and wave it over my head. There are in fact pictures of me wearing my royals hat in the rally cap position backwards and inside out, another superstition, watching the TV with a tiny umbrella over my head. I can't say I'm proud of that, but hey, it's only crazy if it doesn't work. By the way, it didn't work. We lost that World Series in seven games. In 1980, as the Royals were making their first trip to the World Series, superstition was no stranger to Willie, either. He had found his swing again, and he was having a torrid second half of the season. His mind was focused, his hands and shoulders were light and free, and the Royals were winning. Routine is king in baseball, and though Willie may not have wanted to acknowledge it, cocaine had become part of his daily, or rather nightly, routine. Willie, like so many other ball players, had added cocaine to his list of ritualistic superstitions. His own way of kicking the ball from the dirt into the grass.
0: ABC Sports presents the 1980 American League Championship Series for the fourth time five years, the Kansas City Royals taking on the New York Yankees. I had just had an outstanding second half of the baseball season,
1: and you know, I was somewhat of a, a streaky hitter, so going into the playoffs, I was hot. Willie was hot, and this time around, the Royals wouldn't be denied. Was
0: it was Chris Chambliss in 1976. This one's hit deep to left field. It's going to be gone. Home run, Frank White. Touch them all, Frank. Set by Gossage. High drive with deep to field. It is gone. Three-run
2: home run by George Brett into the third tier of Yankee Stadium. And Brett has taken the Royals and put them in front. Pulled strike three, and Kansas City wins the pennant. The
0: Kansas City Royals turned aside in 76, in 77, in 78. Coming into New York and sweeping The American League Championship Series.
1: As Kansas City basked in the glory of its first trip to the World Series, the whole town was in a mood to party, perhaps none more so than Willie himself. I had my homeboy from Detroit. He
0: flew up to to Philadelphia, and he brought one of my girlfriends from Detroit with him. And I told him to fly in and bring some coke. Yeah. You know, he was my connection in, in Detroit. Every time I, I went to Detroit and played against the t- Tigers, he had, he had some, some coke for me.
1: Yeah. So he flew up to Philly in and brought the coke. Game one of the 1980 World Series, your birthday. First at bat, you fly out. The second at bat... me. high, deep right center field.
0: McBride going back, Maddox going back, home run! That ball just got up there and just kept going. And Willie mays Akins just broke into his home run trot. He's just now getting to third base, and I don't blame
1: him. He's going to but hit you weren't done, base. because then the next don't time you came play. up to bat, you Get hit another home run. Yep. Deep
0: to right field. McBride is going back. This ball may be out of here. Home run, Willie Mays-Ankins. His second home run of the ball game. And if he's not tired, he's going to be tired after that shot. Willie ankins really into a trot, just now getting to second base. It's a 7-5 70, ball
1: game, 7-6. I want to read the quote because I love the way this is, this is put in the book. You, um, it says, On the home run swing, his back knee touched the ground and his hips twisted so that it looked like his torso was going to spin off his legs. He threw his bat with the same grandiosity as Reggie, but he threw it in a way that didn't say, Look at me, I'm a star. Instead, the way Willie threw it, it said, let's party. Dig that, people. We're going to have a party. <laughs> <laughs> and we did after the game. <laughs> Royals lost that game, though, 7-6. to six. The Phillies were up three games to zero. And in game four, seals of the game. First game she's ever seen in my whole life, including Little League, Pony League,
0: American Legion, high school, college, and the pros. She had never been to a baseball game ever. That was her first one.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, what a game to be at, because uh, you hit your first home run in the first inning, and then you hit another home run, which made you the first player in World Series history to hit two home runs in the same game twice in a series. And then you mentioned that you got high that night. Yeah. After the game. Yeah. As the series shifted back to Kansas City for the last few games, the Royals found themselves up against the ropes, and Willie had established a routine. We made to Kansas City. Raymond, Raymond Brown and Cooter,
0: mm-hmm. Lawrence Goodine and their girls, they drove a, a, a van from, from Seneca, South Carolina, to Kansas City to come and watch me play in the World Series. My homeboys. Yeah. And I said, guys, bring the Coke. Because the old saying was... Things, things go better with Coke. <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm at the highest of my baseball career and I'm not thinking about, uh, you know, cocaine is gonna screw up my performance out on the baseball field because we did it at a minimum back then. I'm, I'm, I mean, we didn't just go out and just get drunk and all sloppy and, you know, we, we just parted, like going out, out to the bar. Yeah. And they brought the Coke and we parted after each game. champions. It's happening here in the stands. Mike Schmidt is the most valuable player. And now in the clubhouse of the world champion Philadelphia Phillies,
1: we have Brian Gumble. Brian? Okay, Joe, I don't know what it's like outside, but it's bedlam inside. Larry <laughs> Boa, nine hits in the series, a hit in at least every game. The Royals We're lost in six games no, to the done, Philadelphia Phillies, but by all accounts, Willie had won. The World Series had made him a household name, a superstar on the game's biggest stage. As Gregory Jordan points out in Safe at Home, quote, Willie had never felt so happy in his life. Cocaine from that night forward would be inseparable from a sense of happiness.
0: Yeah, it became a part of my lifestyle, the other players' lifestyle. Baseball players can not marry and have kids or whatever. I don't want to say it's a boring life, but you just do the same thing over and over. You go to towns and in hotel rooms and you don't get a chance to get out with people.
1: I've never tried cocaine. That's not to say I'm squeaky clean. I've tried other drugs, just never cocaine. It's been offered to me on a handful of occasions, and for some reason it seemed like a bridge too far in my years of experimentation. Perhaps I have the Just Say No campaign of the 80s to thank for that, it seemed to permeate almost every corner of my childhood. I even remember Kansas City police officers carrying Chiefs' trading cards. You could walk up and ask them for the cards, but in return you had to promise to say no to drugs. Pretty effective tactic. In fact, much more effective than the actual Kansas City Chiefs were in those days. It could also have something to do with those PSAs that every child of the 80s remembers. The dad who finds his kid smoking pot. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, are right. I learned it by watching you. Or the one with simply an egg and skillet.
0: This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions?
1: Every kid went around half-mocking the famous lines from those ads, but most kids would also probably be lying if they said the ads didn't at least give them pause. So as I think about what that first experience with cocaine might have been like for Willie, having no experience with the drug myself, I tried to think of who I could speak to. Surely I knew someone who would have been in their 20s, in the 1980s, at the height of its popularity. Someone I knew had at least tried it once. So I decided to call my mother. Hi, Mom. (laughs) Hi. I've never said these words to you, but I am recording this phone call. What? Yeah. Um like right now. Like right now.
2: Oh, I'm chewing on a gurmeled apple.
1: I have to say, hats off to my mom because I truly didn't warn her that I was considering asking her about this. So here's the thing I want to talk about. And when I explained that I remembered being younger and having conversations with her about drugs, I didn't expect her to be okay talking about it for a podcast, but I figured what the hell? Might as well ask. So I if you're okay talking to me about it, I kinda wanna I get love. your your experience with it.
2: So my experiences with cocaine was um, just strictly when I'd be at somebody's house or I'd be at somebody's party or I'd be someplace where it was, but it was a very, um, it was a very addictive drug. I don't see how anybody, if you had money and you had the means and the ways to buy it, I frankly didn't have the money. You because I was raising a child, but yeah. I also had the luxury of having grandma. You know, she watched you a lot. So mm-hmm. if I was, if I didn't, if I knew I didn't have to go get you, then I could be responsible, or I could be irresponsible, I guess they would say. And um, but it was a very enhancing. It just made you feel really, really good. I guess that's what I. Yeah, are you asking about my experience with it, or yeah, I like, thought of it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what. I, yeah, that's. Specific. Do you remember any specific?
2: Situations?
1: Instances? There's
2: lots of them.
1: Cocaine's roots lie, quite literally, in South America. It's extracted from the leaves of the coca plant, which grows throughout Western South America, most prevalently in Peru and Colombia. Indigenous tribes throughout South America were known to chew on the coca leaves, often during religious ceremonies, as it was deemed to have divine origins. When Spain invaded Peru in the 16th century, the plant's leaves were introduced to Europe and gradually increased in popularity, first being mixed into wine and other liquids. It wasn't until 1859, when Albert Niemann successfully isolated the primary alkaloid in coca and named it cocaine, that the drug began to take form as we know it today. It eventually found its way to North America, and in 1886 its popularity was further heightened when John Pemberton included a pinch of cocaine in his new soft drink Coca-Cola. The drug also received glowing endorsements from many in the medical community. Sigmund Freud praised its capacity for enhancing cognition and energy while misunderstanding its addictive qualities. Thomas Edison, Sarah Bernhardt, and many of Hollywood's silent film stars openly and enthusiastically acknowledged their use. It wasn't until the passing of the Jones-Miller Act in 1922 which led to the creation of the Federal Narcotics Control Board and the oversight of what was being imported and exported by the United States and its territories, that restrictions began to take hold on the drug's recreational use. It fell out of favor after that for many decades until it saw an emergence in the 70s and 80s. 77, 78,
2: 79, 80, 81, that period of time. I mean, it was at every party you walked into, during that period of time. You, you did not walk into a party that somebody in some other room wasn't snorting cocaine.
1: In response to this new demand, a complex network of illegal smuggling by drug cartels emerged between South America and the U.S., creating an ample supply of the now illicit drug to Americans. This, of course, made cocaine much more expensive, which contributed to its reputation as the drug of choice for the wealthy elite. As mom pointed out, while it was certainly illegal, hardly anyone cared about hiding their use of the popular drug. You know, and obviously, as I'm doing this podcast, I don't want to ever condone cocaine use. I don't want to no. condone drug use in any in any way. But I do want to kind of make it clear that from what I remember of it, and, and you would remember this even more clearly than me, did you get the feeling that it was, Kind of no worse than Smoking Pot. Like, was oh, it that kind of... by all means. It became an off-scene component in movies and TV, with shows like Miami Vice managing to glorify and glamorize both the narcotics officers fighting the smuggling of drugs into the country and the smugglers themselves. While use of the drug has declined in recent years, it still remains the second most popular illicit drug in the United States, behind only marijuana. So, that's a brief history of cocaine. For white people. It's a little different for minorities.
2: All right. I'll let you know how it goes. Okay, let me Thank know. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Love I love you.
2: you, love you. Love you, too. Love you too. Bye-bye.
1: A closer look at the Jones Act, along with the Harrison Act and several state laws that preceded it, reveal legislation that had little to do with the nationwide concern for drug use. If someone did become addicted to drugs, which obviously happened, it was treated as a health issue to be dealt with by the individual's family and community. But there was never talk of legal interference or jail time. What these laws and actions of the early 20th century were really about was jobs. In 1875, San Francisco passed the first Ordinance Against Drugs, making the very popular and rapidly expanding number of opium dens illegal. But it wasn't because the use of opium was creating a crime wave that San Francisco needed to tamp down. Opium was very popular among Chinese immigrants who came to California, like so many others, looking for the riches the California Gold Rush promised. They stayed and took the hard-labor, low-wage jobs available as San Francisco continued to grow. This was a big concern for white workers, afraid their jobs were being taken away from them. As The Atlantic chronicled in their online series City Lab,, quote, that first law came in the midst of an economic crisis for which Chinese immigrants ultimately became the scapegoats. Civic leaders blamed the 41,000 Chinese people in California for stealing white people's jobs, and America was harboring a xenophobic fear that the country was being invaded by quote-unquote Orientals, who were not only less than human and morally corrupt, but also a threat to national security. Workers put pressure on lawmakers to enact anti-immigration laws that restricted the community's rights and that would bar them from entering the country altogether." Lawmakers needed to find a way to decrease the available workforce of Chinese immigrants. The only way to do that was to find something about their activity to criminalize. And that's how we got, first, the highly controversial Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, followed by the Opium Exclusion Act of 1909 the first anti-drug law in our nation's history. While the Opium Exclusion Act specifically focused on banning the import of, quote, smokable opium, in California the law was expanded on to include possession. For the first time in U.S. history, drug use became a criminal act. This led to raid after raid and the imprisonment of scores of Chinese immigrants living in California. Despite a lawsuit by one Yun Kuang claiming it was a violation of individual right to liberty and property, the Supreme Court ruled against, and in that one defining moment, a precedent now existed for the mass incarceration of drug users.
2: They call it wacky dust. It's from a hot cornet. It gives your feet a feeling so breezy and oh, it's so easy to get. They call it wacky dust. It brings a dance So
1: where does cocaine come into all of this? Well, similar to the appeal the drug had to the white community after its introduction in the U.S., it started to become more prevalent in the black community as well in the late 1800s. When southern plantation owners began to hear stories of dock workers in New Orleans using cocaine to enable them to work longer and harder, they began to give cocaine to their plantation workers who were almost exclusively freed black slaves. In 1901, the Senate adopted a resolution forbidding the sale of opium and alcohol to, quote, Aboriginal tribes and uncivilized races. Since the American public considered the black community to be an uncivilized race, if you were black in 1901, alcohol and opium were now illegal for you. Cocaine, at this point, was not. This led to increased use of cocaine amongst the black community. As news of this spread throughout the South, whites who feared what they considered to be a menace to civilized society, a free black man, began to spread rumors of rampant crime in the South by black men who were fueled and made crazy by cocaine. Headlines popped up nationwide like the one which appeared in the New York Times in 1914, which read, quote, Negro cocaine fiends are a new Southern menace. Its author, a noted physician, wrote, quote, The Negro fiend imagines that he hears people taunting and abusing him. This often incites homicidal attacks on innocent and unsuspecting victims, end quote. It mentions that, quote, Southern sheriffs have increased the caliber of their weapons from 32 to 38 to bring down Negroes under the effects of cocaine. For many, the mere suspicion of cocaine use by a black man was justification for lynching. So, as the Great Migration shifted the black population from the South to the industrial North, the cocaine use followed, though nowhere near as rampant as the headlines might have suggested. In fact, cocaine use within the black community prior to the Jones Act was negligible, especially when compared to its white counterpart. As the 20s led into the 30s and the country became mired in the Great Depression, industry fled the inner city, and so did white families, emboldened by the New Deal policies, like the Federal Housing Authority, which made it easier than ever to own a home, if you were white. The FHA institutionalized an explicit practice of denying home loans to minorities, specifically blacks, based on areas they lived that were deemed high risk. In its own 1939 underwriting manual, the FHA warned of, quote, inharmonious racial groups, and concluded that, quote, if a neighborhood is to retain stability, it is necessary that properties shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. Often, the FHA wouldn't even consider offering loans in these neighborhoods. This system became, and still is, known as redlining, named for the color given to the undesirable neighborhoods on FHA maps. Similarly, around the same time, the National Association of Realtors introduced the concept of steering. This involved dissuading clients from certain neighborhoods according to race, advising that, quote, a realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood members of any race or nationality whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property values in the neighborhood. Many of these practices were eventually challenged in court, but aside from the fact that there is evidence this still happens to this day, certainly the widespread effects these overtly racist policies had on the minority population Laid the groundwork for the creation of the modern American ghetto. There's so much more to this story than I can do justice to, but I would highly recommend reading Ta-Nehisi Coates' Atlantic article, The Case for Reparations, for a more in-depth examination.
2: The apart, they call it wacky dust. It's something you can't throw. And in the end the rhythm will stop when it does, And you'll drop from happy wacky dust.
1: As the Great Depression and then discriminatory practices like redlining led to massive job loss and urban decay in America's inner cities, the economic toll had a corresponding mental impact in those communities, and we began to see an increase in drug use, notably with marijuana and cocaine. Marijuana, incidentally, would be the third drug to find itself criminalized as a result of jobs, as it became closely associated with migrant laborers from Mexico and Central America, who began to fill low-paying jobs in the fields out west. As the situation in the inner cities continued to deteriorate, and the homeless population grew, the drug use and drug transactions began to make their way out into the open streets. Then, as the drug cartels in South America began to see an emerging market amongst the white upper class in the U.S., the need for low-level drug dealers led to job opportunities albeit illegal ones, for many of the inner city's most impoverished. So now, with more cocaine on the streets in black neighborhoods, and whites traveling into those neighborhoods to purchase cocaine, we find a new intersection between the white and black experience with cocaine. More drugs on the streets means a greater interest in drug use by those living on the streets, but now that cocaine is an imported black market drug, it's expensive. The need to create a cheaper way to get high using less cocaine leads to the discovery of crack. And with crack, America would find a second opportunity to paint its narrative about those, quote, Negro cocaine fiends. But we're getting ahead of ourselves with that, so let's get back to baseball. Right now, of course, it is the longest and costliest strike in the history of professional sport in this country. 33 days, 393 games, including tonight's All-Star game, which was scheduled in Cleveland, or more than 18% of the season washed down the drain. The strike began on June 12, 1981. The negotiations had begun the previous year and were mostly agreed upon with the exception of an issue surrounding free agent compensation. On February 28th at spring training, the players voted to approve a strike on May 28th if the owners couldn't offer a better free agent compensation solution. The National Labor Relations Board stepped in and temporarily put the strike on hold while they asked a federal judge to order the owners to rescind their compensation plan, essentially their final offer. When the judge refused to rescind that order, The strike was authorized, and for the first time in history, Major League Baseball stopped mid-season. The All-Star Game in Cleveland was canceled, the players were literally locked out of the stadiums and stopped receiving paychecks. The strike came at an especially bad time for Willie, whose success at the plate during the previous year's World Series had carried over. By June, just before the strike, he was hitting .292, and the papers were calling him the Royals' most consistent hitter. Furthermore, he'd spent the offseason improving his fielding skills, and had become a much better first baseman. He'd also honed his nightly cocaine regimen. Two to three lines a night, followed by a vodka chaser. He'd sleep with the bottle by his bed, in case he needed the alcohol to take the edge off. Once the strike hit, the baseball stopped. But not the cocaine. He'd met Rita at a bar one night, and had started a fairly consistent routine of getting high with her three to four times a day, following that with sex each time. Since he couldn't take batting practice at the stadium, he and Rita began showing up at local batting cages. People started gathering to watch—press, fans, fathers and sons, once an entire little league team wearing green Oakland A's shirts. I can speak from experience that, in Kansas City at least, perhaps everywhere in the early 80s, instead of being sponsored by a local business, the entire league would be sponsored, and the teams wore jerseys that emulated actual MLB teams. The Angels, the Cubs, the Blue Jays, they were all represented. I was even then pretty sure there had to be some backroom, Boss Tweed-style corruption behind whoever got to be the Royals. I couldn't prove it. I just knew it was never my team. I was one of those kids wearing a green Oakland A's shirt. And I have the little fake baseball card to prove it. So, in the absence of baseball, Willie was putting on a show for little leaguers and their parents at batting cages all over Kansas City. The baseball strike created an unexpected opportunity for fans across the KC area. A chance to watch one of the game's greatest hitters take batting practice up close and personal, right there in their own neighborhoods. Of course, what the parents and kids couldn't have possibly known, he was high every time.
0: Coming up on the next episode of Sometimes It Rains. Everything that happened with me and Jim Fry was my fault because I made the choices to do what I did.
2: I met those guys probably about 81, and, uh, you know, we were supposed to call that off, and then all of a sudden it started becoming, you know, probably five nights out of the week. I had a house, a pool, a business. We'd all get together in the house. and. Uh, you know, the ball players were there and they're coming from other teams. When they come into town, you know, they would come over. You know, there was all kinds of walks of life of people there. I mean, when I, you know, I there, was, there was even a judge came by one time, you know, a city
0: judge. I think they had been watching us. I think they knew what we was doing. And I think they mentioned us to let us know that, hey, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, your baseball career or even your life is going to be in jeopardy. And if you don't stop, we're going to get you guys. We didn't stop.
1: Sometimes It Rains is presented by Ad Astra Productions and is produced by Nick Schmitz and me, Matt Hostetler. Our original music is by the incomparable Gary Grundy. You can find more of his music at www.garygrundy.com. Executive producer, Mike Lucero. Our associate producer is Jordan Lucero. Our audio engineer is Quinn Cecil, and post production support is provided by Outpost Worldwide. Special thanks for this episode to January Lavoie, Kevin Thompson, John Hamm, and of course, my mom. And a very special thanks to Willie Akins for sharing his time and story with us. Willie's book Safe at Home is by Gregory Jordan, and I can't recommend it enough. It's available wherever books are sold, and also by contacting Willie directly at willieakins 24com or akenswillie24 at yahoo.com. His Twitter handle is at wakens, and mine is at hostetlermatt.